From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The police shooting of a teenager with developmental disabilities in 2003 led Denver to create an independent monitor over its police and sheriff's departments. Nick Mitchell spent eight years in the role. He's moving on just as Denver's chastised for its treatment of Black Lives Matter protesters. What he hopes his successor can achieve. Then a pandemic trip to the dentist. And then relax your tongue. Can you set Many people are foregoing dental work despite very little transmission, what dentists are doing to keep patients safe. And later, the artist behind all the giant hearts popping up around Colorado during the pandemic. I get emails all the time from people who are like, oh, I'm a nurse and I drive by this every day and it helps me go to the ER and work every day. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The police shooting of Paul Childs, a 15-year-old with developmental disabilities, rocked the Denver community in 2003. The killing led to the creation of an independent monitor, a watchdog over the city's police and sheriff's departments. Nick Mitchell was only the second person to step into that role in Denver. He spent eight years working with communities and law enforcement, and he's moving on just as the DPD reckons with how it handled last summer's Black Lives Matter protests. And Nick Mitchell, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thank you. I want to start with a clip from Alex Landau of the Denver Justice Project, a law enforcement reformer, a victim of police brutality himself. And he had this to say about your work. Nick Mitchell personally had earned his ties in the community in a sense. I mean, I know there was a lot of hesitation on working with him uh, based on experience of working with political figures here in the past, um, especially when it comes to law enforcement. And Nick Mitchell oftentimes would go out of his way to meet with us. We would discuss uh, tactics, you know, just our views of the office, ways we thought the office could be strengthened. Um, And he proved to be a, a very valuable ally in a lot of those areas. Can you give us an example of a concrete change in policing or jailing that you were able to make with those sorts of relationships? Well, that's that's really uh, flattering um, what Alex said, and I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned, Ryan, at, at the top of our discussion here, the Black Lives Matter protests that happened just this uh, past summer. Um, as you may know, I was asked as the independent monitor to conduct a, an investigation into the police department's responses to those demonstrations. Um, the city council made a request that I you know, do a sort of a broad sweeping investigation And we did that for several months, starting over the summer, Um, and we ended up making 16 recommendations for reform uh, in the police department associated with, you know, how protests are to be policed in Denver 
And, and to its credit, the Denver Police Department adopted all 16 recommended reforms. So um, although we haven't you know, seen other protests like we saw this past summer, you know, certainly um, I, I would expect we would see a very different police response if we do see additional protests like that in Denver. I mean, this was a fairly damning report on how Denver police handled the Black Lives Matter protests. I'll sum up just a few of the findings that police used weapons recklessly. Body cameras were inconsistently turned on and off. There was no roster for who worked on which nights of the protests. And when officers filed use of force reports, something they're required to do, the language was often vague and boilerplate. Uh, We can't go through all 16 recommendations, but give us an an example of one that you think will make a palpable difference to someone who is protesting in front of the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was certainly a critical report. Uh, we certainly found significant problems associated with the internal controls in the police department uh, for um, you know how officers managed those protests. Um, and I think uh, you know we recommended a, a series of, of you know, new kinds of managerial oversight that the police department could engage in on its own. Um, so, you know, making sure that officers are using force in, in only appropriate ways, making sure that officers are um, have a sort of clear game plan about why they're engaging with demonstrators. And, and it, oftentimes in, in demonstrations, it, it can be more appropriate for the police department to kind of hang back until you know, intervention is needed. Uh, and I would expect that we would see more of that approach taken by the department in future protests. What about just the idea that a massive police presence is in and of itself a changing of the environment, of the ambiance, of a protest that might otherwise be peaceful? Are there discussions about me, just um, that presence and what it means? You know, I I think there are. Um, I think those discussions have happened inside the police department. They've certainly happened in, you know, the community. Um, And the research shows that, you know, police presence can uh, in and of itself be um, an escalator, you know, for uh, in the middle of uh, in the middle of these kind of large scale protests. So police departments often kind of calibrate how present they need to be how much sort of heavy duty, you know, potentially intimidating equipment they need to show up with at the scene of a protest because it, it can um, be inflammatory. But they're also sort of balancing those questions against the need to protect the public safety, you know, the need to protect, um, you know, both you know, people who are participating in the protests as, as well as, you know, other residents and, and business owners. Um, I, I think that balance can be very hard to navigate for many police departments, not only in Denver, but but across the country, as we saw this past summer. Um, but I think it is an important consideration. And, and, and I think the you know, Denver Police Department is aware that it, it needs to strike that balance. You took over the office of the independent monitor from Denver's uh, first independent monitor, Richard Rosenthal, in 2012. What did you feel like you were inheriting at that time? You know, I, I think my predecessor did, a, a in many ways, a, a great job in establishing the office. Um, uh, but when I took over, um, it was a very small staff. There were just a few people on staff. There was actually a legislative committee meeting uh, when I became the monitor to consider 
um, amendments to the ordinance that you know empowers the office to sort of restrict the powers of the office in, in important ways. Um, you know, I and I opposed those changes, and, and those changes were ultimately defeated. Um, so I, I think it was sort of a beleaguered operation. People weren't exactly sure what role it should play in in government or what role it should in play in you know public safety policy issues. Um, over time, you know, I was able to build out a team and build out a function that I, I feel really proud of. And I think we sort of changed the expectations about what this kind of office can do. And yet there are still limitations on your office, are there not? I mean, the, the access that you have, for instance, to files, to documentation. You know, there there are limitations. Um, I, one of the things that I did as, as monitor uh, when I encountered, you know, significant obstacles, um, I would go to the council or go to the, and, and by that I mean the city council, city council yeah. or go, yeah, go to the, um, you know, the administration uh, to seek changes in the law to try and address those obstacles and, and sort of, you know, fix them, uh, at least from my perspective. So there were three sort of major legal changes that happened during my tenure one of which involved adding the OIM, as it's called, to the city's charter, um, but two of which specifically addressed impediments that I was experiencing as the monitor, including um, you know, obstacles to my ability to obtain documents and information from the departments. Um, so you know, I think the law is better. Um, there's more transparency now in the relationship of the police department and the sheriff department with the monitor's office. But I, I think certainly there are you know, other issues that need to be addressed. My successor, whoever that is, will encounter their own set of obstacles. And I think they, you know, they may have to deal with those through additional legal changes in the future. Give me one example of an impediment that the new monitor will face. So, you know, we, uh, of course, uh, the OIM has the the jurisdiction to oversee all investigations of of, um, allegations of misconduct. Uh, and, and those are conducted by the Internal Affairs Bureau of the Police Department. Um, through those investigations, uh, the OIM gets access to body camera uh, footage. Um, but there is a separate database of body camera footage that uh, the OIM does not itself have access to. Uh, and I think there have been you know, questions in the city council, questions in the city about uh, whether the, the monitor should have direct access to that database of body camera footage. I expect that that will be an issue for my successor to grapple with. There, as I understand it, there are not other independent monitors in Colorado. Did that mean other communities in the state came to you seeking advice on police accountability? Yeah, well, let me just um, sort of note that Boulder has created an independent monitor. So Boulder is the second uh, community in our state uh, that has recognized the importance of this function um, and taken sort of action to create a new role. Um, But I think many communities in our state have grappled with the deficit uh, in, in sort of trust that has built in the policing function. You know, many cities have... Uh, experienced this sort of declining level of trust um, and have reached out to me to talk about it, to talk about what they can do, what specific changes they can make within their police departments, um, and to consider whether they should create 
you know, an independent monitor or some other kind of oversight body to help enhance transparency and, and help, you know, enhance public trust. If there's a theme to those requests or those frustrations across Colorado, what is that theme? Mm, what a great question. Um, I think the theme is probably often, you know, well-intentioned municipal leaders and policymakers who are often perplexed um, by why the relationship is not stronger between you know, communities, particularly communities of color uh, and their police department. And they often call me out of a sense of um, you know, frustration and a desire to, to make, to sort of fix those, those underlying wounds, um, but they often are at a loss for how to do that. Um, you know, they've recognized that the old approach, which, you know, often involved, you know, hot dog cookouts between officers and uh, people in the community, which is totally valid. Um, uh, but they've recognized that that old approach of just sort of, you know, fiddling away at the margins is, is not good enough uh, in, in today's world. And they need to do more to sort of repair those relationships. I want to focus a little more on the relationships you built with community members. Abolitionist Elizabeth Epps of the Bail Project Colorado Freedom Fund had this to say. I believe that people who have been harmed by police and by sheriff's deputies in Denver understood that they had an office that they could turn to that would really listen, care, and do a thorough job, um, both for survivors and for families of folks who didn't survive. And so I think it's a real impact that that people understood that they could go and have a, an opportunity to pursue redress and to have claims investigated in a way that wasn't just going to be dismissed, wasn't going to be rubber stamped. Nick Mitchell, help people understand, is the Office of the Independent Monitor a place that folks can walk in and say, I was brutalized? Is it that accessible it to the public? Yeah. yeah, it is. People can walk in, people can call, people can file complaints You know, on the website. People can engage, you know, the office is just a few blocks away from police headquarters and from the downtown jail. So people can walk over and talk about their experience in the criminal justice system. You know, part of what, and there can, you know, there'll be some investigation into their claims. You know, part of what's so interesting to me, um, you know, I like to think about government and how it works and how it breaks down. Um, often, when we do these investigations, um, we're not always able to prove or demonstrate, you know, when someone makes a claim of misconduct, we can't necessarily prove that they were mistreated or that policy was violated. Um, and we, we would never promise that. We would never promise a particular outcome. What we would promise would be a process, you know, a process that had integrity, uh, a process where there would be transparency, there would be follow through and follow up uh, with people. And, and often, even if we didn't have, you know, if we were reporting back to a complainant about the outcome of inv an investigation, no. even if no. we didn't have an outcome uh, that, that they were happy about, I think they felt really satisfied that they were treated fairly and, and that was enough. Nick, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Nick Mitchell just stepped down as Denver's independent monitor. After eight years, he started a new job with the L.A. County jail system, where he'll help address unconstitutional conditions. We'll be right back with what a return to the workplace might look like after the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Listen to CPR News and get the word on what's happening all around the state. And visit denverite.com to get even more news from the Mile High City. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and you'll find our small but mighty reporting team all over town, bringing you the useful and delightful news you need to live, work, and play in Denver. Get the daily Denverite newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every morning. Sign up at denverite.com. We hear your feedback in an occasional segment called Loud and Clear. Earlier this week, we talked about the GameStop stock phenomenon, how a group of amateur investors motivated by Reddit forums drove up the price. The surge caused problems for hedge funds that had shorted the stock, in other words, betting that GameStop's value would go down instead. One of my guests on Wednesday was Chris Hewen, associate professor of finance at the University of Denver. And here's just a brief part of that discussion. I do want to talk about the sort of populist aspect of this. There is a sense for sure that has emerged, Chris, that Wall Street is for the elite, that people don't feel that uh, they have a place in Wall Street. And this was an example of the little guy getting back, uh, being in, in a way their own hedge fund. Can, can you reflect on that for us? And indeed, I think that the smaller investors have won a battle against some of these hedge funds who've suffered tremendous losses betting against uh, some of these companies. I don't think that they're going to win the war. And the reason why is because if you have a mispriced asset where the market price doesn't reflect the true value of the, the company or the asset being traded, you're, you're going to have no end of people and investors coming in to try and eliminate that discrepancy through trading. So it's it's a little troubling that the little small investors think that they're going to win against Wall Street. Um, I, I do like the fact that people are interested in investing and trying to take advantage of low-cost platforms that don't charge them to trade. But I don't think they're really going to stick it to hedge funds like they think they they really are. Okay, so that was Wednesday. The value of GameStop shares had already fallen by nearly 70%. Well, John Anderson of Longmont was one of several listeners who thought our segment missed the mark, that we didn't emphasize enough how these amateur investors weren't looking to make money. They were looking to make a point. You know, what I kept hearing was is that these people were just like, oh, you know, people are jumping on this bandwagon, but it's a terrible money move that it's a, it's a bubble, it's going to burst, and people are jumping on it. And this is absolutely true, but what you're missing is is that the people who are buying into this and buying the GameStop stock are not trying to make money. They know it's a bubble. Like, if you look at Reddit, if you look at Wall Street bets, like, left and right, people are like, this is a bubble, this is going to blow up, and we're doing this just to be disruptive. We're doing this to disrupt the stock market. We're doing this as a, as a show of force. And frankly, I won't claim to be an expert on the matter. I have no money in the stock market. Frankly, I didn't really follow Wall Street back until recently, um, but I followed enough to understand the sentiments. And uh, these people aren't doing this to make money. Anderson works for a home builder and has been a Redditor for a long time. Keep your feedback coming. You can find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. (music) 
The pandemic has forced a lot of people to work from home, and they've adapted. But opinions are split on what happens once it's safe to return to the workplace. CPR's Sarah Mulholland speaks to one CEO about his post-pandemic office in downtown Denver. Under ordinary circumstances, there would be 300 people spread over nine floors in BOK Financial's Denver headquarters at 1600 Broadway. 15th floor. On a recent Wednesday, there were about a dozen, give or take, on the building's upper floors. Yeah, it's a, it's a different feel. That's Bill Sullivan, the CEO of the Colorado market for BOK Financial. He waves to a smartly dressed employee, one of the few signs of life in a long corridor of largely empty offices. It's been almost a year since businesses first banished workers from the office. Whether it's safety precautions or simply because a lot of people enjoy the convenience of working from home, a vast majority of office workers haven't returned. There's obviously a lot of flexibility that's built into that and not commuting or paying for parking or, you know, paying for lunch downtown and and just having the ability to kind of work from home. There's a lot to like about it. It can feel like the pandemic has ushered in a new era of flexible work arrangements. Tech giants like Facebook and Twitter have announced that employees can work remotely forever. But Sullivan has a different take. And once it's safe to do so, he plans on bringing everybody back, more or less full time. On the top floor of the 26-story building, the offices all have glass partitions. It's a nice view and good natural light. But there's something else Sullivan likes about the setup. What I like about it is uh, uh, you can't hide behind a shut, closed door, right? I mean, you know, you're still, you're still visible, and if I want to walk by your office and, and I need to chat with you about something, I'm, I can knock on the glass and grab your attention pretty easily. But for now, there's not really anybody there to talk to. BOK Financial says that currently between 10 and 15 percent of staff are in on any given day. Sullivan says employees have performed well under the circumstances, and work-from-home policies will likely be more flexible going forward. But, he says, there's no substitute for in-person interactions. A lot of us spend a lot of time in the office, and that's still an important social aspect of it, and, and you miss that. Sullivan says it's sad that people haven't seen each other outside of a computer screen in almost a year. So uh, we do look forward to getting everybody back in, and I think, it, I think it does make a big difference. But looking at the numbers indicates some businesses aren't so sure. The office vacancy rate is the highest it's been in almost 10 years in Denver. And businesses put more than 2 million square feet of office space on the market to sublet since the pandemic started, meaning they want somebody else to take the space off their hands. That's all according to CBRE, a commercial property brokerage. Pete Chippitz is the president of CBRE's Mountain Northwest Division. He says they don't see a mass shift to companies abandoning office space entirely. And some of what's happening with Denver isn't necessarily about working from home. It's about companies being unable to pay rent because of financial difficulties. But still, Chippitz says there's no doubt that businesses are rethinking how they're going to use the office in the future. He says the thinking in many corporate boardrooms goes like this. I may not know exactly what I am going to bring my employees back to, but I know it's not going to be what they left. 
But as for BOK, they more than doubled their space at their downtown building in the past two years. They just finished a major renovation in October. Sullivan says aside from the bottles of hand sanitizers everywhere, they stuck with the original plan. No design changes uh, because of, of COVID. We're, we're thinking longer term about that and expect people to be back in and fully utilize the space again. Sullivan hopes that with vaccines, they could have everybody back in the office by the end of this year. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. All right, open wide. And then relax your tongue. Can you set that? Maybe a teeth cleaning doesn't top your pandemic to-do list, but dentists say it's still very important to keep up with regular visits. And despite all the spit flying around, the COVID-19 infection rate among dentists is less than 1% in the U.S. That's according to the American Dental Association. Well, to scrape away some of the mysteries of pandemic dentistry, Dr. Yulia Rabinovich joins us from Dental Muse in Castle Pines. Hi, Yulia. Hello, hello. And Dr. Sage Pollock joins us, who founded Dentistry of Colorado. Hi, Sage. Hello. Let's start with that 1% statistic. Uh, It comes from last summer. Sage, why do you think the infection rate among dentists is as low as it is? I think it is because we are trained from day one that... um, to treat everybody as potentially infectious mm. to protect ourselves and protect, protect our patients and our team. So, um, interestingly enough, I feel like, you know, we added a few more layers of clothing and N95 masks, but we're used to, to protecting ourselves against, uh, against bugs. So a few new layers of clothing, and then you said N95 masks, that's not something you were doing before the pandemic. No, we were wearing level three masks. Okay. Yulia, do you want to add anything to the changes you've made and why you think offices are fairly safe, really safe? Yes, I think think dental professionals were ahead of the game to begin with, with all our PPE to begin with. And so the extra layers of the N95 mask and the, the facial shields just add that extra layer, which obviously shows in such a low infectious rate um, we just learned to trust our PPE. It saved us during the HIV pandemic, and so it's saving us during COVID. We're just so in tune with infection control, it's obviously working. So whatever we've been working up until this point has been working, and that extra level of protection is obviously working as well. That's fascinating, though, that you learn from HIV. Now, that, of course, protects, I think of all that equipment, protecting the dentist or the dental hygienist, but any number of people might be nervous uh, as patients. So talk about the steps you take to protect patients as well. So we, we have um, patients out. Sorry, go ahead, Sage. <laughs> go ahead, No, Sage. you go for it, Yulia. Oh, we're all so polite. Um, Everyone's telling everyone to go first. Okay, I, I'm going to call it. Sage, go ahead. Okay, so um, the new one of the newer things that we started doing is virtual waiting rooms. So that means we don't have waiting rooms full of patients. We They text us when they arrive and then we text them when we're ready to go back. We try and have our front office as hands-off as possible. Um, and then that also keeps, you know, people safe. You know, they're not in, coming into contact with people in the waiting room. But all of our, our typical infection control sterilization processes um, really 
is hasn't changed at all. It's just it's really good. And it's always been really good because we need to protect everybody that we come in contact with. Okay, Yulia, chime in here. Mm -hmm. Same thing. We definitely ask patients to let us know when they've arrived so we can space patients out. There's no one ever in the waiting room. Uh, Patients are instructed that only the companions are asked to wait in the car or outside. Uh, Guardians are asked to be to limit one per patient if it's a minor or someone who needs a caretaker. We send out a COVID questionnaire screening form to make sure that none of the answers are asked yes as far as exposure. And we take temperatures on every single patient and uh, caretaker who enters the office. So there's definitely necessary precautions that we take on top of what we used to do before COVID. But as far as infection control, um, those standards have worked really well in the past. And so we upkeep those. And yet I have heard from friends and colleagues that they're nervous to go to the dentist in a pandemic. So uh, I want to ask you each about whether you're seeing a deterioration of dental health, um, either because people are, you know, not coming to the dentist as often, or I was fascinated by a study out of Israel and Poland that people are teeth grinding and jaw clenching during the pandemic. How do you think this moment, Sage, is affecting dental health? Well, it's interesting. So we were closed down um, by the governor for about a month and a half. And when we opened back up for the first, I would say maybe six months, I saw such an increase in gum disease and cavities. And yes, a lot more teeth grinding and headaches and jaw pain and sleep issues. Um, And it was the, the big thing that stood out to me was you know, the cavities and the gum disease that had increased, I had to check myself and make sure I wasn't overdiagnosing. But it was just the, an overall depression, people had kind of given up on personal care. Um, and so luckily, that part of it, I feel like has improved just in the last few months. But it's, it's really the the thing that hasn't changed is the level of stress people are under. So yeah, they're grinding their teeth more, they're cracking their teeth. They're having more headaches, more migraines, more sleeping issues um, because of the increased stress. Can you crack a tooth because you've ground them too hard? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, just okay. punching and grinding will, will crack teeth. I, I do implants. I do a lot of surgery and, and jaw treatment on patients, and so I, that's predominantly what I see. And you can crack a virgin tooth just from clenching on it. Oh. It's, it's crazy. Yulia, I think of my dental hygienist who is like a a preacher for dental health. And she's always telling me, you know, dental health is physical health. It's whole body health. So much about your mouth is connected to your body. Um, and so I, I wonder if you might reflect on the idea that if you let yourself go dentally, you're actually jeopardizing your overall health. Absolutely. We, we used to think, or rather um, patients used to think that of dentists are just tooth mechanics. We just Something breaks, you come in, we fix it, and and that's the end of the story. But your mouth is connected to your head, and then your head is connected to the rest of your body. So it is extremely important to make sure that your oral health um, is up to date and you're taking care of it. Because if you can't chew properly, you can't masticate properly, that affects your digestion. Um, It's also important to know that a lot of the systemic diseases show up in the mouth. And since people generally tend to see their dentist more often than their physician, it's important to keep up with that uh, with that that as well, because we can pick up on certain things that wouldn't would have gone unnoticed otherwise. So if 
the chewing ability is affected, it also has an effect on the muscles surrounding the masticatory system, and that in turn can, and obviously uh, grinding and clenching can lead to headaches and migraines and TMJ issues, and down the line to sleep issues as well. So you won't, you know, it's one of those that you don't know what you don't know until you go see a professional and have a discussion on what the symptoms are and let them figure it out for you and help you figure it out. Yeah. And my hygienist has lectured me on inflammation in the body. And if there's inflammation in the mouth, there's likely inflammation elsewhere, which, you know, uh, can lead to disease. So you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about dental health in the pandemic. And uh, I also want to talk about your bottom lines as dentists. I know that doctors' offices in general uh, have been hard hit by what has been referred to as slovid, people not going in to seek medical care because they're afraid of uh, of the virus. Has the, the closure of dentist's office early on and the fear around dentist's offices, has that affected uh, just your ability to keep the doors open, Sage Pollock? Um. Initially, there was a lot more fear. Patients were nervous to just even leave their house. So um, in the first few months, I I feel like I got a lot more questions like, what are you guys doing? Um, Are are we safe being here? And then I feel like people overcame that and they weren't as nervous. Um, A lot of the issues, I think, after that initial opening period why people weren't coming back is because they had lost their insurance. You know, maybe they had lost their job or lost benefits because of COVID. And so then that tends to keep people away. Um, So we actually have an in-office insurance plan that we offer at no charge to anybody that has lost their insurance due to COVID related matters. Yeah, that's encourage them to come in. The cascading of the employment situation around the economics of COVID uh, Yulia, I, I note that you actually opened your practice in January 2020. I mean, just before the virus hit. Can you hit. imagine? I, no, I can't. Yes. Talk about those 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 realities. It's been rough. I think on the one hand, I was fortunate in the sense that because I just opened, I still have my bank loan and that they carried me through that. But I think also I, I had that Um, disposable income to be able to go a step step further and get uh, medical-grade, surgically clean air purifiers. Um, I believe Dr. Polak is going the extra mile as well with HIPAA um, um, uh, filters as well. So we had to really think outside the box and how do we make people feel safe? I mean, we were scared too. I, I remember my first day back after we were allowed to see patients for routine care, I was definitely nervous. Um, but, you know, you do a mental checklist of all the things that you're doing right and the and the 95s and the face shields and the air purifiers. And then you tell patients the necessary precautions that you're taking as far as um, how are they going to be entering the office and the pre-treatment mouthwash that they have them use and we use high-speed suction. And once you're down that, run down that list, you, you realize that you're probably safer in the office than you are in the grocery store. <laughs> so we definitely go the extra mile to prepare patients as to what to expect. And once they understand the, the measures that we take as far as we go to keep everyone in the office safe, I think that really made a big difference as far as people trusting us with their care and with their health and protecting them and coming into the office. So 
I'm in a unique position where I don't have the numbers to compare to prior to COVID because I literally opened doors right before. And knock on wood, patients see the the measures that we take and they come and they trust us. I'm just interested in your backgrounds in dentistry. Sage, I understand you started your career at a, a very young age, right? I did, yeah. I, when I was 14 years old, I started working in my grandpa's dental office. And so he started training me to be an assistant. And I was an assistant for 15 years. And then I went to dental school. Um, so I've been in, this is, dentistry is all I know. <laughs> I, love, I love the industry. It's such an, it's such an amazing profession. Yulia, what about you? What got you interested in dentistry? Believe it or not, my mom was a dentist in Eastern Europe, and my childhood smell is that of a very specific temporary dental material. And, uh, it, you know, not everyone gets warm and fuzzy from smelling dental office, but <laughs> I am one of those people. And it kind of just, I guess, christened me into dentistry from an early age. And it, it wasn't a logical choice. It was the only choice. Uh, I've always been around it, and I love it. I totally get that. The smell of jet fuel is my childhood scent. <laughs> uh, and I don't imagine that's one everyone loves. I'm just curious before we go, where dentists are in line for the vaccine? Sage, what do you know? So they actually put us in the front lines, which is great. And up until up until about a week ago, it's been really hard to get appointments. But we're, we're actually able to get our staff scheduled now and, and us scheduled for, for the vaccine. As of this week, which okay, is so great. You're in line. Yulia, is that true for you? Yes, yeah, same. I literally want to say just yesterday I received an email notifying me that we now can get vaccines and providing necessary links to get that scheduled. It's got to be a relief for you mentally. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having us. You heard from Dr. Yulia Rabinovich of Dental Muse in Castle Pines, Colorado, and Dr. Sage Pollock from Dentistry of Colorado, talking about oral health in the pandemic. Still to come, the artist behind all those hope hearts popping up on walls and windows in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As coronavirus continues to spread, the vaccine is rolling out across the state. And CPR News has what you need to know. You'll find complete coverage online, including our always up-to-date guide to different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and county-by-county help on how to make appointments. Just go to CPR.org slash coronavirus. Giant, colorful hearts have popped up all over the front range during the pandemic in Summit County as well. They say hope, sometimes esperanza, and they're pasted on boarded up storefronts or in the windows of struggling businesses. I passed one of these hearts while riding my bike the other day and stopped to snap a photo wondering who the artist is. Well, she is outdoor artist Coco Byer of Denver, and she says no project she's ever done has taken off like this one, called Project Spread Hope with a hashtag. Coco, welcome to Colorado Matters. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Candy-colored hearts, let's say, are not your usual fare. You've tended to do almost surrealist stuff, like a, a dapper fellow with an eyeball for a head. Uh, how did the idea of the colorful hearts occur to you? 
you know, I, I really wanted to do um, something specific when the lockdown started that kind of addressed the situation and it really elevated people's mood a little bit and hopefully gave people a little bit of hope. The color palette on these I call pink lemonade, which is one that does show up a lot in my regular, much more mysterious work. Uh, but for this particular set of, uh, of images, I really wanted to do something that had a really clear intent. Pink, um, pink lemonade. I, to... I, I love that description of color. And, and just describe the hearts. I mean, they're fairly large. And again, they have the word hope written in them. Most of them are, are uh, about six foot by six foot, though there are smaller and larger ones around. And um, it's basically just a, a heart shape that's yellow and uh, it has a yellow stripe around the outside. And then it's yellow and magenta concentric stripes going into the center. And then it says just the word hope. Hundreds, and, of, uh, hundreds of Coloradans have asked you to paste these hearts on their walls and in their windows. Uh, restaurants, the Denver Botanic Gardens, History Colorado Center. Uh, Coco, do you ever get to hear what these hope hearts mean to the people who see them, who pass them every day? You know, uh, a lot of people have reached out to me generally through my Instagram. This, this whole project's been run through my my Instagram. And, um, and I've gotten some amazing feedback from people who just tell me how they lighten their mood. Or I heard from one hospital worker who told me that she sees it every day and it like helps her go to work every day. And so I've had some really amazing responses. I would, so many people tell me that they, they feel better when they see them, which I just love to hear. Yeah. They feel like little confirming anchors all around town when we are all so at sea metaphorically. <laughs> You've sent Project Spread Hope pasting kits to other cities, I understand, Chicago, Minneapolis, Kansas City, New York. Are you surprised at how this has taken off? You know, it's it's been a really interesting project in how much it, it has taken off. I've, I've really done it all along in kind of a, a opposite way that I do my projects in the past where I basically put some out into the world and uh, took pictures of them and put them on my Instagram and ask people if they had a high visibility spot to put one uh, to contact me. And they've just been contacting me ever since. And uh, it's been it's been really uh, kind of a unique situation, even with the ones out of town has been the same where people have reached out to me. They've seen them in my feed and uh, and they just wanted to put some up in their own town. And it's been really amazing that way. These hearts and much of your other work is called pasting. I mean, you use a biodegradable plant-based glue, and that means means much of your work fundamentally is ephemeral. It disappears. D- does that make you sad as an artist? <laughs> you know, actually, I, I love to watch them fade away. Um, I have also enjoyed kind of paper aging, and um, so it really doesn't... I, with the hope parts, I've, tr- I've been a little bit more um, aggressive with repl- with replacing them frequently, so that they they stay a little bit fresher. Um, there's so many of them out there now that I'm kind of in a, a constant process of trying to replace them all and uh, and get them all refreshed. But uh, no, I I don't I 
you know, with hope, I don't want to have it be too tattered out in the street. I have a friend <laughs> go, well, does this mean that faded hope if it's faded? And I'm like, I think it's still, even if they're faded, they still mean hope, you know? And so it actually works either way. You do what you call permission pieces, meaning you always have an owner's blessing before you put these hearts up. How do you see pasting as different from other types of street art? Uh, you know, in the past, I've generally had sort of done a combination of of pieces where people asked me to do them, but most of the ones were kind of on things like boarded over windows and dumpsters and just kind of ugly things out in our world that could use a little bit of beautification. Wow. Whereas this project has been completely by people reaching out to me and and asking to put things on their uh, their spots. So it's it's definitely been a different uh, a different uh, process for it. And I think going forward in the future, um, I will do this more than I have in the past as far as just reaching out and saying, hey, do you want one of these on your on your building instead of uh, constantly going out there and trying to find places for them. But otherwise, you saw it as your mission to beautify ugly places in the city. I mean, dumpsters <laughs> included. I, I guess dump- dumpsters are still private property, though, right? So there's, there's a, a fine line there. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> there's a good point. Where I don't, don't tell anybody, but uh, I will figure if it's something, you know, I, I, you mentioned I use biodegradable paste and they're made out of paper. They, they basically come right off with water if you want to take them off. And so, you know, I, some, someone called it uh, vandalism light um, at some point, but I, you know, I never go onto people's private property or climb fences or any of those kinds of things. I, I try and keep it strictly where I'm trying to improve the visual landscape of the city. And, you know, that's, that's really my, my only goal. And then if, if somebody, if one gets, we call it, when things get painted over, we call it getting buffed. And so when, when one gets buffed, I I never go back to that spot again. And, you know, that, that's a symbol to me that they don't want that on their property. And uh, so I, I try and be, uh, Trying not be a vandal. I guess. A vandal. What was the term you used for when something gets covered over? Uh, buffed. Buffed. Okay. You, when you when something yeah. gets buffed, I, I just yeah, want to say you've done versions of these hearts that say votes. You did rainbow ones for pride, and the font you chose is near and dear to you because you are in a family of artistic royalty. One might say. <laughs> uh, well. I- it's my. It's definitely my favorite font, and it's called Font Universal. It's by my step grandfather Herbert Beyer, and um, it's a font that he designed in the 1920s. That is really one of the very first modern sensory fonts, and has been super influential in, in all other fonts. I, I love it because it's so so clear and. Uh, and uh, it's a great has a great weight to it. Yeah, so Herbert Beyer was a celebrated graphic designer and architect and painter and all sorts of things. He lived in yeah. Aspen. He designed ski posters, co-designed the Aspen Institute, helped restore the Wheeler Opera House. In just a few seconds, Coco, do you imagine the Heart Project will end after the pandemic? Just briefly. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I think there's probably always a place in the world for hope. Um, I think obviously right now we need it more than ever, you know, and so as long as I feel that there's a need for it, it'll be part of the mix of what I do. Um, 
hopefully uh, we'll be moving out of this this pandemic zone and it'll you know it might be balanced out with more of my other pieces as well too but um, I think there's probably always a place for hope in the world that is outdoor artist Coco Buyer who created project spread hope with a hashtag uh, and so Coco is behind all those colorful hearts that have popped up in Colorado during the pandemic. Finally today, an NPR tradition. Each year, the network asks stations across the country to spotlight emerging artists. Well, the 2021 Slingshot list features a Colorado pick from our colleagues at Indy 1023. Host Bruce Trujillo says an intergalactic supergroup has landed in Denver, and they go by the name of the Grand Alliance. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now tuned in to the future of funk. Carl Burrell, Sir Els, and Caleb Marquis. Can you keep up? Tell me, can you get down with this funk? Give me that heat, that sweat, that juice, that crunk, that funky stuff. The Grand Alliance is the creative collaboration of R&B singer Kayla Marquis, MC Sorrells, and producer Carl Carell. The trio dubs their sound Future Funk, heard here in the track Chakra Khan, recorded in a CPR performance studio last February. Well, I just I wanted to tell you, you look really pretty tonight. And you should pause. This conversation is killing the mood. Turn it up, no time for talking. Wanna see your body rocking all night, all night long. I don't care what's in your pocket. Wanna know if you can rock me all night long. Music from the Grand Alliance of Denver, the funk supergroup is featured in NPR's music slingshot list of emerging artists for 2021. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to our own supergroup of producers and engineers. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Holcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Turn it up, no time for talking. Wanna see your 